Welcome back, everyone, for another fun episode of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And today I got David Mandel on, and we're going to talk whiskey. David's had quite a history in the in the whiskey world, and I'm super excited to have him on the show today. Dave, welcome, my friend. How are you? Oh, it's great to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Well, you know, I still go back to those first days at Bardstown Bourbon Company, you know, <laughs> coming in there where it was all like coming together. You know, I, I remember meeting um, you. You remember they, they used to have over there the a crew that was an international crew, and you know, being from South Africa, I got oh, to meet gosh, some of them that, that time. <laughs> that was a fun time. Dave, you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself, and then we can get into some fun questions. Yeah, thanks, Gavin. I, it's really funny. I I remember those days so fondly. And you know, on, on the one hand, it seems like just yesterday, and the other, you know, it also seems like God light years ago. And you know, so much has happened over the years. But I'll tell you, um, you know, I uh, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm a lawyer by background, and uh, you know, I got into the alcohol space uh, by starting a vodka company. A caffeine. We made the first caffeinated alcohol, and this is back in the early 2000s. And it was like one of those completely wild experiences. You know, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We came up with the idea. And uh, Dan Lind, who which was- Which one Which one was it back then? It was called Pink Vodka. And it was the first caffeinated alcohol, first caffeinated vodka. This was the early 2000s. Um, and what a, just a wild experience. And we learned so much about the beverage alcohol space, you know, with that. I mean, I was running restaurants and nightclubs back in that era. So like that was the era of vodka. <laughs> it was pretty crazy because like, you know, I, you, you know, t- you know, walking into a bar in those days, as you know, how much whiskey was on the bar? Like four bottles? It was like nothing. <laughs> and it was like, it was vodka, 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 and more vodka. And then like uh, uh, the other usual suspects, you know, like Southern Comfort. You're right. you know, Jack Daniel, right. uh, I mean, you know, like that was Johnny Walker, you know, like the limit because because they were like, hey, people are drinking vodka now. That's what we sell. I mean, I remember vodka Red Bull. Well, and, that's you know, how you talk about doing a caffeine. Yeah, because you talk about a caffeinated vodka. Like, I remember Red Bull coming to my bars and being like, hey, man, we got this like six dollar upcharge, but it's going to make them feel really good. And we're like, what is caffeine? You mean coffee? And they're like, oh, no, you make it. It's called a vodka Red Bull. We're like. Oh man, it's gonna be really hard to sell. They're like, well, we'll give it to you. And you try it and let us know how it works. And like, do me a favor, don't charge the customers extra. Just like tell your bartenders to try to upsell it. And you you know the history, the rest is history. I mean, Gavin, it's how we, it's how we created the the product. I mean, this was the early 2000s. I was drinking Red Bull and vodka at the Sky Bar at the Mondrian in LA with Dan Lind, who's- Oh yeah, I was there, I was in normally every Thursday. Yeah, right, so we were up there and we looked at it, so it's like, why can't we make alcohol that doesn't make us tired? It's like, oh, yeah, like that's a great idea. And we came back, worked on it nights and weekends, created the product, moved it into a two bedroom apartment on the Lower East Side of New York. uh, And we built the company from the ground up and, you know, that's how we learned the branded beverage space, uh, alcohol space. And I'll tell you, I mean, we, we grew that company, 45 states, five international markets, 75,000 cases, but it wasn't a success. It was not a success. And, you know, I we can talk more about why that was, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, 
it was um, it was what I would say was not it was an incredible learning experience experience, and it created the foundation for what was to come at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Okay, let's go to that chapter. <laughs> so okay, let's just, just humor me. Humor me for a second, though. Yeah. In the vodka era, were you drinking yeah. whiskey at all? I mean, no. when like what's your when does whiskey start for you? Like whiskey. when do you like? Oh, this spirit's actually brown liquor. Is wait, that's pretty cool. Okay, so I'll tell you. So during the vodka era, we were drinking pink vodka, right? I mean, when you own a brand, as you know, like you're drinking your brand yeah. wherever you, <laughs> you go, drink right? your brand. You're drinking well, and it's and it's caffeinated. I mean, right. you're talking oh. to a guy that used to sell energy drinks. I was like 600 megs of energy every single day because it was my brand. Oh, you know, I like, mean, did I? <laughs> it's like I completely, I get it. And we're not only were we selling pig vodka, but we had we did a drink um, collaboration called uh, the Pink Bull, which was pink vodka and Red Bull. So like, <laughs> I mean, it was like it just went on and on, but. It was uh, it was really a wild time. But, you know, we sold the company in 2009, right after the, you know, really basically right after the financial crash, when all of yeah. the high net worth fund money just sort of stopped. And we were, you know, we were growing very rapidly. But as you know, like that kind of growth, you're not you're not uh, cash flow positive in a way that's able to, you know, independently run that. Oh, company. my God, you're. You're, you're swiping credit cards money. at every restaurant and nightclub. To well, you're ra- we were you know, raising keep, a lot keep it on money. shelf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when that happened, we made the decision to sell the company with a long tail. And then, of course, product called Four Loco came in and just, you know, long story short, destroyed, you know, the, the whole market for mm-hmm. uh, caffeinated market. So Dan and I, we kind of we we went back. I, I went back to D.C. He went to L.A. And in 2009, uh, 2010 timeframe, we got very involved in a project. Um, I don't know if you recall Hill Haven Lodge. It was a whiskey that came out with Diageo and Brett Ratner. Um, several. I remember the Brett Ratner. Yes, yes, I do remember that. Actually, ended up getting, I remember getting, a buddy was tight with Brett in in L.A., and they were trying to push that. I was like, that was the tail end of my like restaurant nightclub era. And they were trying to like, hey, we got to do something here. Yes. So we worked on that original project um, way before Diageo was involved in it. Actually, very few, Gavin, very few people know this story. It's a kind of it's a it's a bit of a wild one. And it was we did a lot of research. We were working with Brett and with Al Melnick at the time as consultants and we put together you know the plan the brand identity with them originally they wanted to do a rum and we were encouraging them to do a whiskey and we were doing a lot of research into the market and we were looking at the market at the time and saying this is again this is 2009 time frame this is the next breakout segment we like it was starting but it wasn't you Jeez. know it had not really ramped up yet <laughs> so like there's nothing out there that has kind of this, you know, modern, interesting vibe with a great story behind it. And Hillhaven Lodge had the potential for it. Now, that's a lot of And this is a whopping, by the way, this is a whopping 12 years ago, whopping 12 years ago. And what did the landscape look like when you were looking and you made that decision that there's nothing kind of like that? What was in the market around that time? I mean, there was very little. You had, you know, on the, as you know, like on the, on the edges, you had the craft, you had the craft segment 
growing, right? It was just starting. You had some of those, you know, early, you know, early movers. Um, and so, you know, like Hudson and, you know, Tuttletown, yep. all, um, you know, and you had, you had a number of those brands that were kind of breaking in through the, you know, breaking in because of the, you know, the surge in the craft cocktail movement was starting, right? It started in London. But that was really only on the East Coast. I mean, I wasn't seeing any Hudson no, pulling was, on the West. No, no, no. It was all New York. It was East Coast. And it was, you know, it was that primary influence coming from London. And you had the craft cocktail bars, you know, opening yep. in New York. And so yep. um, we saw it and we were really fascinated by it. And after, you know, that that work that we did on the Hillhaven Lodge brand, and that's a that's a whole other story. We um, really started looking at whiskey um, a lot harder, and with my former business partner Peter Lofton, who was the you know primary investor behind Bardstown, I went out to Bardstown in 2013 to start looking at um, you know building a small whiskey distillery uh, in Kentucky. And why Bards? And why Bardstown, David? Back in then. Yeah, 2013. I'd love to say like we went to Kentucky with this like great grand plan, but we started looking at a number of different places. We were even looking in Indiana, but Bardstown was the bourbon capital of the world. And so me actually not even knowing that much about uh, really whiskey and the from a manufacturing standpoint at the time, I came down here, you know, met the leadership of the community in Bardstown. And started seeing the vision for what, you know, was to become the Napa Valley destination experience. And it was just being here, traveling here, meeting with the leadership that we began to kind of create this idea. And like a lot of things, I'd love to say, like, we came with this this plan. It it was uh, very much not the case. It, It evolved constantly as we began to build that business. And for you, like, are you now drinking as much whiskey as you can to try different things or you're just like you have a vision you've seen an opening you're not you're an an early identifier so you're like hey opportunity i can let's see what we can do over here i love the innovation side and so what we saw first gavin there was we saw a tremendous need to do custom whiskey manufacturing. Nobody else was doing it in Kentucky. Oh, and man. That's, that's what created, that was the engine. That's what created uh, Bardstown Bourbon Company. And I went out and I sold that concept as we were just literally designing the facility. And all of a sudden we sold out all the capacity of the distillery in its first, uh, in its first, uh, you know, evolution. Um, and we, we then had to just kind of get back, get back together and say, okay, how are we going to actually do this? It's one thing to say you're going to do 40 mash bills. It's another thing to actually execute it. And this was before we hired the distilling team. This is before I hired Tom Kerm. This is when it was just us and Steve Nally. Um, this is before John Hargrove. This was in the early days. So tell me, so, so Steve, obviously, you know, I remember, you know, being with you guys, we're like underneath Bardstown. It's it's those square bottles that were like one of the first limited releases yeah. with the brandy company and another one. Yeah. I mean, I still have like a quarter bottle. And I remember drinking that down there because like for me, when I first met you guys over there, I was like in my world of grocery, co-packing is 100 percent normal. 
Nobody, right. everybody has an idea. Nobody right. wants to go buy the equipment, manage the people, do any of that kind of stuff. They're like, hey, dude, we tasted a bunch of shit. We know how to market. We want to focus on what we're good at and making it is not our strength. And when I saw you guys, I'm like, oh, man, what you guys are going to do. I mean, I remember back then with, with Steve that day, I think he was like, I can do 38 recipes like currently. And I remember that that I, I remember explicitly that day. He's like, yeah, we're looking for this like um, it's called like bloody red corn or something. And it's an ingredient for a brand that I can't this I can't tell you their name, but they're looking to move to us if we can bloody butcher if we yep. can source that corn. And I'm like, holy shit, like these guys figured it out. So it you're was seeing that as well. Well, obviously, you're selling out the, you know. So, how do you go to a guy like Nally and say, like, we want you on the team? Well, I hired Steve very early on in the process, and Steve was a great addition. Obviously, he was our, you know, our master distiller. And as you get into these things, what's interesting is nobody had done anything like what we were suggesting. Steve came out of no. Steve came out of Maker's Mark, <laughs> yeah. where they made, you know, one or two different recipes. And as we got into it, it was very clear, like we needed, our initial team needed a lot of help. I mean, Steve didn't know how to do it um, and manage that kind of production. And so we hired Tom Kroom, who was the head of operations for Jim Beam for 28 years. We we hired, luckily, we had uh, the strike at Jim Beam, right? About six months before, three, four months before we opened, we hired some of their most experienced operators. Um, we got up and running. And it was really funny, you know, those early years in that first early year, we had a lot of challenges producing what some of our customers uh, wanted. And, you know, one of them being, you know, a major company, which was half of our business. And it was those trials and tribulations that led me to go after John Hargrove. And John, who was the rising superstar over at Barton Brands, was also producing for this big company. And was doing a great job. And so I, I, it took me six months to get him. I brought him over and we went from 25,000 barrels to 50,000 barrels to 100,000, HACCP certification, ISO certification. You know, John changed the entire trajectory of Bardstown because he had a food manufacturing background. He came from PepsiCo and Frito-Lay, was brought in by Sazerac and Mark Brown to, you know, to redo Barton and to get that up and running. And he was the game changer. And it allowed me then to then go focus on building the restaurant, the bar, the visitor's experience and the brand. And that's how how it went. It was really an unbelievable story. And where and like, you know, because I've like I said, you know, you know, I was from day one kind of watching and it growing legs and, and building. You know, I remember even joking on a couple of those first trips out there, like, why aren't you landing helicopters on the grass out here for the derby? Because they <laughs> sure as hell aren't going to drive 45 minutes, you know, in a car. So like doing that, like just helicopter experiences, charge top dollar, you know, boom, boom, go. You know, because really you when, you know. Even until now, I mean, you know, like in Bardstown, there is nothing like Bardstown Bourbon Company as far as like the grandiose grandiosity of it. Uh, you know, when you pull true. in there, you're like, oh, shit, this is like and obviously, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger and more capacity, more rickhouses. You know, I'm I'm working on a project right now where we're buying, you know, we're, we're setting up contracts to buy whiskey from there, you know, so like it's gone wild. You. Now, are you drinking whiskey 
and like, are you in the moment or you're all business? No, no, no. I, you know, ever since we started Bardstown, I mean, I really got into whiskey as well. And so I enjoy it. I enjoy all aspects of it. And especially coming from the vodka industry originally, you know, there's just so much complexity to whiskey. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I really, that's what I love about it. I mean, it's creating not only everything from, you know, all of the di different mash bills. So it's, it really is about how do you create, you know, interesting product and how do you affect that product every step of the way? And there's so many points at which you can adjust, play with, develop, you know, different flavor pro profiles, like very unique and authentic ways of finishing it. It was one of the things that I loved the most and I drove at Bardstown was the innovation side, everything from the development of the, the you know, the collaborative series, you know, all of those early innovations. And it started, Gavin, it started with that square bottle and dinner with <laughs> Joe Heron at Copper and Kings. And I, and I would- Copper him, and Kings, that's it. <laughs> I give that's him it. so much credit <laughs> because I'll never forget the dinner when Joe and I first met and we were just starting Bardstown, he had Copper and Kings and we were, we had this, well, I, he is a, he's just a dear, dear friend to this day. We share so many of the same philosophies, but the philosophy is like, let's experiment together. Let's push the boundaries. You know, so we created that, what was called quote, the collaboration. And I, and then that yep. morphed into the idea of, I said to Joe, I said, I really want to expand this idea in a big way and create a whole series with many different companies and tie the two brands together. You know, we were the first to really do that in whiskey where you actually promoted the other brand. You put the logo on the back of the bottle yeah. and it was just, it was amazing. And it, and it tied into our ethos about being, you know, a transparent, you know, and, and a company that was all about the celebration of just making great whiskey. And I, I, that's something that I am, you know, mo one of the things I'm most proud of about the early days of that company is, you know, how we went about approaching the market. I mean, it's it just it was unheard of to share with others, to play nicely with others. It was unheard of. And it was also like the whole the whole co-packing and the capacity, you know, because you had guys that actually had distilleries that just didn't have the capacity or the level to make what was needed. So coming to you was way easier. Like, hey. You know what? We 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 got what we got. We're not looking to invest five million in more machines. How about you just take all the excess? And what we know, on your line? And you know, again, what we prided ourselves on at the time was customer service and like the best customer service. And it was something yeah. that I spent, I'd say, spent like forty percent of my time at that business on culture, on building culture, because it starts with every employee in the company. And, and I remember, like, even the operators saying, like, well. What 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 is customer service for us? Well, we're producing for customers, and every person that joined Bardstown at the time had to had to. I say I gave them, and we talked about it. Was Danny Myers setting the table? Um, the book and the philosophy about enlightened hospitality and how to take that through every aspect of the business, and so that was a you know core core foundation for us, and it was something that you know making sure that everybody, you know, really understood kind of the difference between customer service, you know, and hospitality and what they call enlightened hospitality, which is, you know, anticipating people's needs, being able to correct the situation 
in a positive way when you make mistakes, like all of that, you know, that life cycle that takes it so much further than customer service. I, I mean, I live by that in my industry because, you know, that's just, you know, none of my restaurants and nightclubs would have been successful if you didn't have great customer service. Right. <laughs> just that people have people have choices and what differentiates brands is the customer experience and the service because not everything goes right. No, 100 percent. I'll tell you, you handle it is how you are judged. Absolutely. I'll tell you a funny story. I don't think I've ever shared this story publicly, but he wouldn't mind me saying it. Um, one of no, our the first customer we had at Bard's Number Urban Company was Amir P.A., dear friend. Um, and he, he um, you know, he has, you know, a, a great brand. They're over um, in Lexington. They had 1776 um, product and we were producing for him. It was actually, it was funny. He's the very first customer of Bardstown. And we did a rye production for him. And I remember he came in and he he thought it was off. And I remember the organoleptics showed that it was fine, but the, you know, he really felt that it was off. And I remember uh, my CFO, Dan, who is, you know, again, he's my business partner in Bardstown. He was one of the founders. He's current business partner of mine. Um, we've worked together forever, but he's playing the CFO role. And he says, well, I have to take this. I mean, it's a lot of money. And I said to him, I said, Dan, he doesn't like it. We're going to remake it. And I called up Amir and I said, we'll remake it for you. And he said, you will? I said, yeah, we'll remake the whole thing. Um, we'll we'll take that product. Don't worry about it. And I remember what he said to me. And he said, like, said, David, you know, like that moment. So I was just totally blown away that you would do that. It was a you know, huge amount of product. Um, it was very expensive, you know, it was expensive run. Uh, we remade it for him. And the funny story is we kept that product. And I believe like a couple of years later, not only did it turn out great, he wanted to buy it back. <laughs> right? I mean, I look at that, like you did the right thing and it comes back around. Like that's just good business practices. And I don't ever see people, you know, like I love that story. That's yeah. just a, that's a beautiful story of integrity. And then also like how it ends up turning out. Yeah, exactly. Now, tell me something. Tell, tell me, um, so you have the Bardstown. Obviously, that's that that's a chapter in life. Then what? <laughs> well, so we so I stepped down from Bardstown in 2019, but I remained, you yep. know, owner of you know the company. Um, and then my former business partner, you know, died very shortly after I stepped down, which yeah. was obviously, you know, quite unfortunate. It's just terrible tragedy. Um as yeah. you know, long, you know, history there. And um and so then uh, I took, you know, I had a, a non-compete for two years. I took, which just happened to coincide with COVID, which was really, um, <laughs> you know, in some ways for me, it was, it was, you know, while, you know, that was always, it was a very challenging time for many people and all of us. For me, it was, uh, it was a great time for me to spend time with family. I got very, I'm very involved in the Bardstown community here, but as soon as I stepped down, they came to me and said, okay. Uh, you know, you've been complaining about the Kentucky Bourbon Festival long enough. You want to take it over and fix it? I was like, okay, um, I'm happy to do that. I've got some time. So I became chairman of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which uh, this is my last year doing it. And it's been a, a wonderful and remarkable journey. We've made huge, huge strides in that. Um, and uh, I, I got involved, you know, shortly after in helping uh, Kentucky Owl with their project and moving that along. 
you know, and we've got a lot of lot of exciting things, you know, coming on the horizon as well. So I am fully immersed in all things bourbon and whiskey and very excited about uh, the current market where I see things going. And, uh, you know, a lot of challenges in the industry right now that need to be addressed. And it's, so it's an interesting time. What do you, what do you from from your side of the business? What are you seeing out there as far as challenges? You know, it's interesting. You know, yeah, I mean, there there's a lot there is, you know, on the on the, you know, con- we'll call it contract production side of things. You know, you have a lot of turmoil in the industry right now. You have constrained capacity. So you have mm-hmm. a trail sold to uh, to Campari. And, you know, so mm-hmm. that they're no longer producing for customers. You have MGP that scaled back its new fill production. You have a merger between, you know, Bardstown and Green River, you know, and all yep. of the you know, and all of the, you know, kind of growing pains and, you know, and the and the fun of putting those two companies together, but you have constrained capacity across everybody. And so you also have a, you know, barrel uh, constraints in the industry. You have price increases, you have, um, you know, just, glass, glass shortages. <laughs> yeah. You've got, you know, you've got challenges on, on many fronts and you have still tremendous growth. And so, you know, with do challenge- you think, do you think there's too much in the market right now? Just too many different products? Yeah, it's really hard to say because I think that, um, you know, I think you have to look at the market a couple of different ways. And, you know, I take this all the way back to what I learned with Pink Vodka. And, Gavin, yeah, I, mean, I make a very big distinction between a product and a brand. And I think mm-hmm. that there are a lot of products in the market but I think there are a lot fewer brands. And so the distinction for me is, you know, it's one thing to buy age product, age whiskey, do something to it, whatever, put it in a bottle, sell it to the distributor and move it to retail. That doesn't make it a brand, in my opinion. No. What makes it a brand is somebody has to make an emotional connection to that product. They have to try it. They have to buy it. They have to you know, make it part of sort of their lifestyle. Um, And in order to do that and then tell everybody else about it or tell other people about it, that's like the ultimate, right? And so in in my, in my world, it's, it's stickiness. You know, when I'm in grocery, like you want a product that's sticky that they want. And then you want that, you know, you want that high net promoter score that they'll tell everybody how great it is without you having to do anything because it's just that great. That's the ultimate, right? But to move from a product to a brand, there has to be an emotional connection. And it's really, really hard to create that. That's why I loved, you know, what we did at Bardstown and the focus in creating that place was, you know, we immersed you there. And when you left, whether it was through the restaurant, whether it was through so many different things, you walked out of there and you loved Bardstown Bourbon Company. And then that ultimately translated into our products and our brands. Yes, they had the quality. Yes, they have all of that. But that emotional experience and taking people through that day after day and repeating it, because then when you go out to other states, and this is the this is where I think the number mm-hmm. one, number one mistake that is made in this industry is everybody thinks that you can just expand quickly. You can grow very <laughs> fast. You can go from 10 states to 25 states to 50. And the companies that do that, I think very fast, very few, first of all, very few are successful doing it quickly. Um, and uh, the ones that try to expand quickly realize it's hard to do that because making that emotional connection, you know, like 
You walk into a liquor store, there's a thousand products now or hundreds. Why is somebody going to yeah. come and choose your product in a market where they knew very little about it? How do you create that connection? And social media is not. Well, and I, and I think that's where brands fail. Like yeah. I, there's so many choices right now and everyone's just like just trying to get on a shelf and there's no connection. Like there's nothing. No one's investing any time. I mean, I, I look at some of these brands and I'm like, man, like you spent you spending all this money with expansion, yet you don't even have like a decent brand ambassador. You don't even have like your social media looks like shit. It's like you're so focused on like being at the top that you don't realize the game's won on the bottom. Exactly. It's the blocking, the tackling, you know, it's bar the by ground bar, game. liquor store by liquor yep. store, getting the product to people, creating that experience, how you use, if you have a distillery, great, how you use that place or the home, you know, to then build out a larger strategy. But as you go into these other markets, um, it's you're now also competing on a much larger scale. And you're also competing against the big guys who are spending tens of millions of dollars in marketing and the ground game and on all the above in every single market. And I think people really, you know, that's the brand owners, product owners, they um, tend to not understand, you know, how challenging that is. And so. Well, I think like for you as, as a guy who not only does it, but puts money in and stuff like that, it's like, I always tell people, you know, there needs to be like an independent auditing company that mm -hmm. protects the investors from the sales guy telling them that their whiskey is the next greatest thing. Yeah. And be like, hey, listen, dude, like it's not as clean. Like, I'm gonna tell I'm gonna go pick five states and walk in there and be like, would you buy this without like a ton of free shit and a ton of uh labor, like feet on the street doing it? And I guarantee that 90% of those five states would be like, dude, unless you're invested with like 10 full-time employees, like we can't even guarantee it's gonna stay on the shelf for very long. Because, like, uh, the big boys, that's their job. I mean, I remember when I did energy drinks, you know, there's other energy drink companies who have people in the stores every day with an iPad. And there's a question on there that says encroaching brands. Right. And they put it in. They take a picture. And that goes to somebody who I'm pretty sure that one then puts a hit out and says, like, if you see <laughs> that shit, just move it aside. Just move it aside. Yeah. You know, we own that store. You know, we so own it. True. And the, you know what the crazy part is, Gavin? The part of the business that I knew the least about, we were most successful in the early years. I mean, we, you know, we figured it out and we were so innovative. That's on the custom whiskey production side. I mean, we just, and I say this, it just, it, we built like such an incredible team there that just blew that out. The piece that we knew the most about was actually the branded side because we had been through it with Pink. And as we developed, the initial strategy and the products for Bardstown, which is what I think set them so well um, up for, uh, you know, for, you know, careful growth was all based on the things that we learned with Pink Fog and the things we knew not to do. And so, you know, the strategy we always had with that product, you know, was very careful, slow, patient, you know, growth. And so, yeah. You know, whether, you know, whether the company continues to do that, you know, I don't know. I'm not part of the day-to-day the -day, uh, lifestyle there. I mean, uh, decisions there, but it's, uh, it is, uh, of course not, obviously, but um, it's, you know, it's something that there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure 
and tendencies, unless you have been through it and you've made those mistakes, to try to grow fast. Biggest mistake you can make in this industry, in my opinion. Well, it's also, you know, you you know, you know, see these brands, they come in, they got $2 million, they blow a million and a half out the gates on these so-called experts. I'm like, you need people on the street. Like, right. before you get to that level, like, you've got to actually have a proof of content, which is where I, my question was a few minutes ago. Like, I think there's too many brands in the market. I think we're going to lose a lot of them to be honest, because I don't know what period we're about to enter into as far as the economy, but it's not looking that rosy and pretty out there. And I think a lot of these, a lot of these brands are lifestyle brands, meaning like they were designed for the owner or the investors to speed up their, um, speed up their invitation into the world of high level whiskey, yeah. you know? And, and and the reality is it requires a tremendous amount of money. And I don't think the money's out there like it used to be without the right pedigrees. So I, I'm a kind of excited for a little bit of a shakeup, to be honest. Yeah, I think you're um, right. I just, you know, I, I, I want to build brands. I want to see brands. I want to know that that when I drink something, it's it, it makes me warm and fuzzy knowing who and where and why they're doing it because of they've invested that time and energy and education to create that, you know, like I drink Bardstown all day long because like, I love the stories. Of course I drink a lot. I mean, you know, I drink a ton of mixtures. Why? Because I'm very close to them and it's what I chose to drink. Like I've spent time with the family. I understand what they're doing. So exactly. me, when I have choices, that's what I'm drinking. And you, you made know, we all have choices. That's right. You made that connection. Yeah. It's about making the connection, but they also, you know, like I was, you know, when I showed up at Joe's New York office, I was nobody. This was a guy that, chose to take the connection going back to that customer service thing i was a guy with a with a with a faulty wax on an m20 <laughs> that got into that that got in the office but he was you know that same customer experience like hey listen you know we do that and i think that's what separates the game and i think that that's going to be the exciting part because with the shakeup that i'm that i'm foreseeing coming i think you're going to start to like really separate the top from the bottom and it can always be a bottom, which is fine. They'll be coming in. But like the top's going to get just a lot, you know, shitty word to use, but a lot sexier mm -hmm. because like those brands are going to like you're going to look at that brand and be like, oh, I know what's up there. They did it. They got to me. Yep. I couldn't agree more with you. I think you will have. Uh... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching rare character. You know, I'm watching what Pablo and Peter and the rest of the gang are doing. And I'm like. Dude, these guys are just like making really good, affordable, single barrel cast strength bourbon. Sourced, yep. fully yep. transparent. But fully transparent. Fun, exciting. $74 to $82 for a bottle, you yep. know, like all day long. You know, it's like I, I tell people it's like it's kind of like when you're not drinking FU whiskey, that's what you should be drinking. Right. <laughs> you know, like that's it. You know, if you don't if if it's you know, because you also in this world. There's there's a there's a group of us which is getting bigger and bigger where like the finances are weird. You know, like we don't like, you know, you get a phone call to go buy a three thousand dollar bottle of bourbon. You know, it's great. You go do it. That's not normal. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's become a lot more normal than it used to be. You know, that used to be a four hundred dollar bottle of whiskey that you were like, mm, let me think about it. Oh, uh, 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 you know. And then watching, like, if you're going to come in at that price range, you better own it. You can't just be like, I mean, there's this, <laughs> I just saw the seven-year-old whiskey that's running around in New York. And, like, literally, it's like $1,300. And I'm like, what are you thinking? <laughs> like, wow. 
you know, like it's just, you know, and that stuff will just, it's, it's also, like I said, it's like this group that wants to be part of a group and you're deeply in the group, meaning like you've, you get to hobnob and, and be around the owners of a lot of whiskey, you know, and like, see how, like, it's a slog. It's not glamorous. Not a sexy business. And I tell everybody that and no. people, you know, people think that it is, it's not. And if you, if you don't like um, going restaurant to restaurant, you know, liquor store to liquor store, presenting your product, selling it in, going and doing these promotions, tastings, going to trade shows, all of that. If you yeah. Have- go, go to the trade show where like the average consumer is like seven sheets to the wind by the time they get to you right and you're like hey can you open your eyes while you try this (laughs) but if you don't enjoy doing that um then you shouldn't be in the business in my opinion that's at all levels if you're ceo of a company and you don't enjoy doing that and you're not doing that you know like you shouldn't be running that business because that is the business at the end of the day yeah that's the business and you got to do it which is called work which is called work that's right. You know, like I, I look at I look at Instagram and I'm looking at people like, oh, how did you do it? Rolex whiskey. I worked. I worked. That's what I right. did. I worked at night. I sat on there and I posted and posted and posted and I DM'd and I met and I traveled and like I worked like you can't just be like, OK, cool. Like, how do I do that? Yeah. How about work? Gavin, work. we started doing this again. We built the vodka company on the street. And for the first year, yeah. Dan and myself, we lived in a two bedroom apartment, Lower East Side. And we had a Another colleague of ours who's retired now. She was, you might remember Garnett Black. She was, she was our VP of hospitality at the time at, at Bardstown. She's in her 70s. She's retired. We worked out of that two bedroom. Shame. She was so Garnett, by the way, just an experience. I was running late the first time I came to see you guys. And Garnett was on the email saying, Don't worry. When you get here, you get here. Yeah. See, she was amazing. Um, and you know, we were going out. Every single day we were at, you know, running the business during the day. We were at the bars and we were at the liquor stores during the day. We were at the bars at night. And those early years, I mean, we were everywhere. I mean, we, we, that, that product was everywhere in New York and we were really rocking. And when I remember, never forget, like we do those trade shows and this is as we got bigger too, you know, the, you know, the uh, Las Vegas nightclub and bar show back in those days. Yeah. <laughs> we started with a little booth. And then by the time we we're done, we had like a two-story booth, and it was like a nightclub, the Pink Vodka Lounge. And oh, you're- dude, I used to go. I used to go to those things. Remember I, when vape pens? That was the same time the vape oh, pens were coming on. Oh, it was vodka and vape pens. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because we were, you know, you'd start those. You're up there six in the morning, getting ready, getting set up, like all morning. Then the thing opens, like or you know, close to midday, and you're going all night. Uh, you know, you're going all afternoon till it closes and then you got to go in the evening after you break it down because there's some sort of event that you're sponsoring. I mean, it was it was not yeah. uh, those those were absolute slogs and they were all hands on deck, you know, for the whole company when we did it. I mean, work. Dave, yeah. last question uh, before we wrap up. Any any whiskey experience stand out in your head that you sat at the table or had a glass in your hand and you're like, oh, shit, this is. Life's pretty good. Pin- oh, gosh, you know, I'll tell you. You got to have a few. Give me, give me the why. You know, I. <laughs> so many, but I'll never forget, and you'll probably remember this. When we, when the bill passed in Kentucky that got, gave us sell by the drink in vintage spirits, 
I hired Fred Minnick to go out and help us build our initial vintage whiskey collection. We were the first. Which you which remember you used to have upstairs in that gift shop to the left of like where the restaurant was. There was a couple of bottles hanging out there. Well, and then in the back, we had a cage where it was all. We had a John Hargrove built this this cage to put it all in. In those early days, this is as we were, you know, Fred was writing up all the stories about each one. We created a book, you know, that was out there so you could learn about them and buy them. This is before the vintage library was built. You know, we had it in a cage. And I'll never forget like those early years, which is taking people back there in the cage, like sitting on the boxes and we're drinking stuff. You know, I mean, there was, we had stuff back there from the late 1800s all the way through. And the first piece, the first collection we got, we bought the entire, uh, we got the full chessman set, the old, including the fuzzy, including the fuzzy carpet. Um, And that was some of the best whiskey. I'm sure that's all gone now. I must have sold through all of that. I think there's a teeny bit left. You know, they're still up there on the wall to the right as you walk in. Uh, <laughs> it's still there. That was like some of the best product. And I, I remember, um, I just remember like the, some of those early buys, this was before the regulations went into place. It was kind of like this period where like how you got it, you got it. And we did a great job acquiring, uh, with Fred's help that, that those early, um, those, those early vintage whiskeys. And they're just, there were some incredible things in that in that collection well, i mean that's a you know like i tell people you can't just microwave the stuff yeah. and the guy that made that stuff in the 1800s like he yeah. didn't have a wife that could text him or email from a boss or a cell phone to bother him like he was just working happy as can be putting oh. the best liquid he possibly not he didn't even know i mean there was no machinery to be like oh wait that one's you know like you're saying earlier the story about the ride there was no the, the machinery back then was you know your nose and your mouth and like Maybe like seven other people saying the same thing. Right. It wasn't like, oh, the data shows it's perfect, but it doesn't taste good. It was right. the data wasn't there. That's right. <laughs> you know, so. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's an exciting time. I'm kind of looking forward to as I, I love I don't you know, I know you're saying in 2009, you're like, hey, whiskey's the next thing. I feel like it's it's now just here. It's not a thing anymore. No, no, whiskey it's is here. It's here, you know, and it's it's it's. It's attracting all different, you know, everyone. It, it's all different styles and flavors. But I think that also because it's here and because, you know, everyone likes money, which they should, you know, there's there's going to be a little shakeout. And, and I'm looking forward to, you know, for me, it's like I'm looking forward to brand stepping up more and creating more of that customer experience to get people in and, and the authenticity. Absolutely. Like, I like that. And I'll tell you, you've got to come out if you haven't been to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival since we completely I know. September yeah. 14th uh, through the 16th, com. Tickets will go on sale on May 11th. It sells out so fast now, but we've got uh, almost 70 uh, different distilleries participating from Kentucky. Um, it is really unbelievable. And it's outside, you know, and it's one ticket price for the weekend. And you're able to go through and sample everything you want to, you know, all your samplings included great VIP experiences. We're making some huge inroads this year on food. So let's connect. We would love to have you come out uh, to the festival. Oh, I'm, I mean, remember last year I was landing that period, but it was too late. And the hotels were like, I'd be staying in like 
I don't know, Indiana and driving over. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. So, so you, I have planning. So once we, I'm going to, I am going to follow up because I will come okay. this year. I actually like, if this is your last year as well on the board, I'm definitely coming. This my, is the year. My last year is so chairman. We'll, we'll uh, yeah, that's right. Chairman. No, no, no. It's, it's chairman. Yeah, yeah. But like, let's, let, let's, let's go, let's come have fun. Well, I appreciate you coming on today, dude. I love it, man. I love, you know, you get it. I get it. We got, it. you know, it's like, let's just have more of this. Let's have more like realness. Yep. And more great. Great whiskey and and obviously fun is just always a great side effect of all of that. Excellent. Well, this is uh this is so, wonderful. And uh, I look forward I look well, forward to continuing the discussion, Gavin. Definitely. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. Um, you know, appreciate everyone tuning in uh, for another great episode, and I'll see everybody soon. 